Psychosis can be a frightening and bewildering experience for both patients and families. It often emerges for the first time in adolescence and young adulthood, and a general practitioner may support four to eight patients with psychotic disorder and see one new presentation each year. This week, the BMJ is publishing in its education section a series of articles about psychosis, looking at the role of care in both primary care and early intervention teams, and thinking about some of the evidence-based management for this condition. I'm joined today by the authors for a podcast and a discussion about the articles. Dr David Shires, former GP and honorary reader in early psychosis at Manchester University. Hi David. Hi, hi there Kate. And Dr Sagnik Bhattacharya, reader in translational neuroscience and psychiatry and consultant psychiatrist at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience at King's College London. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Okay, so... I thought it might be interesting to start by discussing sort of why you felt it was important to to write this article at this point. And I know, David, you've published before in the BMJ, um, most well notably an article back in 1998 called Who Cares, about your own experiences of having a relative, your daughter with psychosis. And I, I wondered if you'd mind sharing with us a little bit about that and how that sort of influenced you to become involved in this work. Yeah, I, I first contributed a personal view to the BMJ um, in 1998. Um, pretty raw experience at that time. Um, my daughter, Mary, eldest of three children, she had developed a psychosis when she was 16. Um, and so four years on from the, the development of the psychosis, uh, we found ourselves looking at an eight-bedded, um, uh, no-carpets um, dormitory in an old Victorian asylum. And this was the rehab setting for this by now 19, 19 and a half year old. Um, and, uh, you know, although I'm experienced as a GP, my wife was an experienced uh, uh, primary care nurse, we just were not prepared. I had no, uh, no understanding, no imagination that it, that it could be like this for, uh, for a, a young woman um, at the start of a serious mental health problem. But the, the setting seemed almost guaranteed to, to groom her for disability um, and she felt very written off. So, so it, was a, it was a raw time when we, when we wrote together that personal view. Um, and I, I, I mean, one of the things that goes through your mind as a, as a carer is you don't want other people to have to experience the same uh, sort of thing. And, and it seems things have changed since then in terms of kind of services, facilities and management as well. Um, is, is that part of the reason, maybe Sagnik, that you felt that it was important to kind of do an update in this, this kind of review at this point? Yes, thank you, Kate, and, and thank you, David, for sharing that. And um, I think what David has described really helps make the case for early intervention approach. And um, kind of, I think one just needs to look at how things have changed since the time that David's daughter first became unwell. Um, and, and the early intervention approach has kind of uh, ha has, uh, come into be being there. And, and one of the key approaches is to focus very early on before psychosis becomes more established and chronic and, and disability sets in so that uh, interventions can be offered early on and uh, thereby you can kind of avoid poorer outcomes later on in life. And 
in all this, uh, I think it's important to emphasize that the general practitioners, um, uh, generalists basically are essential in ensuring that this happens early on by helping to detect and signpost young people very early on to the appropriate services. Mm. In fact, kind of perhaps the early intervention approach started round about uh, the time or, or soon after David's daughter perhaps uh, first became unwell about a couple of decades ago. Um, so what, one of the things that uh, I was became aware of in 1998 through my daughter's psychiatrist, um, the slave had actually been involved in a seminal study in Northwood Park in the mid-80s uh, where the pathways to care had been looked at for, you know, I think over 250 people with an early psychosis. Um, and one of, the, one of the key findings of that study was that actually if people engaged services relatively, in a relatively shorter way, um, they had fewer than uh, admissions and time spent in hospital subsequently. So that this idea that by intervening early, you may be able to produce uh, some benefits in terms of I suppose crisis admission and and, um, and length of stay in hospital, use of coercion, that that sort of idea um, grew, and so that this psychiatrist, a lady called Fiona McMillan, um, eventually helped to set up the first early intervention service in North Birmingham um, in the mid nineties. And obviously, when Fiona then became Mary's psychiatrist, you know, I I, I heard about this this sort of new idea, this new development. It made complete sense. Um, we then looked at a pathway study in North Staffordshire that um, the, the local health authority agreed it would be interesting to look at the pathways to care for people like my daughter. So we examined over 40 uh, people, similar, you know, quite young. And that's one of the things that struck me. This was a much younger age group than I had been taught to expect in my training as a GP. Um, so that was interesting for me. Um, Mary was not unique. And the pathways were difficult, um, fam particularly mothers would be knocking on the GP's door several times, you know, and, and before anything would happen, the sense that um, they had a distressed youngster in the family, they were bewildered, they were trying to access help, um, but the pathways to services were quite slow to kick in, and, and so the, the end result was late intervention, crisis, 80% were hospitalised, um, and it was a very traumatic experience. Um, so again, this, for me, the, the thing that struck me, I think, from my family perspective, was that actually this is quite this is quite a difficult condition to spot as a GP. You now, where do I sit in this as a GP? What you know, mums coming several times to say they were concerned, and we, and we weren't doing anything about it. Well, my personal experience was that. Mary had a d difficult sort of adolescence from, from being perfectly happy, uh, settled in normal school. Things began to get difficult in the sort of early teens. Um, some speech difficulties began to isolate. Her, her educational performance began to de deteriorate compared to her peers. And as a family, we just felt unhappy. And I had no idea why we were an unhappy family. Um, and then things gradually escalated. So the, the, the striking thing for me was it was very, very insidious. Um, and then a couple of months of quite dramatic change um, and hallucinations began to become clear. Uh, it's a very dif a difficult phase that, that culminated in a, in a suicidal attempt at home. And a psychiatrist came out to see her at home and said, I think your daughter has schizophrenia. 
Um, so, so, so for me as a GP, that, that sends a signal that this is a, an insidious condition um, and that you, you know, the danger of actually just dismissing this as, well, it's teenage angst or um, maybe it's related to, to, to drug misuse or whatever. It, it, it's, it's that sense of escalation and, and, not keep, and keeping the door open, um, being open to the possibility and particularly being alert to family concerns. I think those are really important things that I understood then as a family member. And I think that's one of the things that comes across really strongly in the article is this, this sense that actually early on in, 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 in the development of the psychosis that, you know, you don't get these really florid kind of, you know, the positive symptoms that people often think about when they think of psychosis. But there is this, these subtleties and these, you know, this decrease, decline in functioning, sort of the anxiety, the, the kind of strain, the, the behaviour that's out of character. And, and actually you mentioned that, you know, don't, don't just put this down to teenage angst, which, you know, maybe you might expect a teenager's behaviour to, to change subtly in some ways as part of kind of normal development. But actually this is something different and, and you, you have to bear this idea of whether it could be first episode of psychosis in mind. But it really, there is this diagnostic complexity. Um, I don't know whether you want to say anything about that segment. Yes, um, I think um, one of the key issues to remember is that um, a diagnosis can be challenging. There will be uncertainty at the early stages, and it, it's not just challenging in, in, in the uh, general practice, but it's challenging even in a specialist setting. So the important, and I think the crucial thing is not to foreclose the possibility of psychosis, especially when there is evidence of decline on function, especially when there is evidence that some of the kind of um, abnormalities have been persisting for a, for a they are not just fleeting, they are, they are persisting for a little longer than perhaps, um, uh, for example, more than a week. And um, it's, it's okay to kind of accept that there is uh, not just diagnostic uncertainty, but there is also prognostic uncertainty because uh, at that very early stage, we often don't know what will be the outcome two, three, five years down the line. And, uh, but the important thing is to um, rather than avoiding and, and kind of minimizing the problems the young person might be facing or problems which have got their family worried, it's important to signpost them to the appropriate early intervention services locally so that they can be assessed and help can be provided early on. And that must be, you know, another of the challenges is how to communicate that on that uncertainty to families and, and, and the person, um, how to kind of encourage them or, or, or reassure them that you're referring them for additional support. But whilst there is uncertainty, like you say, about the diagnosis, about prognosis, kind of what 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 would you say to, um, you know, perhaps primary care or non-specialists in that position? What, what can they say to families and people to try and make that conversation easier or make make that uncertainty easier. I'm thinking, you know, in, in terms of my, my GP, um, with my GP hat on, um, you, you're looking at perhaps a youngster who's been increasingly, um, perhaps come in occasionally with quite vague things, not sleeping, um, you know, sort of relatively minor things that you wouldn't necessarily uh, become alarmed about. 
the, the subtlety, it's the subtlety of incremental change that you, you need to be aware of as a GP. So in terms of actually handling the consultations, um, it, it's really important not to shut the door, um, to, to be prepared to spot the, the, the case where it feels a little bit unusual, um, the sense that, uh, would I be surprised if this escalated? Just that, that sense of openness. Um, particularly then if you start to get triangulation with, with families coming in saying that, you know, they're, they're concerned, they can't quite explain why um, son or daughter spending all the time in, in their room. Um, so, so, that it's, so I'd certainly emphasise it's, it's subtle, but, but, it in, but it incrementally increases. There's a danger that you can just dismiss this by saying it's okay. This is what you you know. This is typical of what you'd expect for a young teenager. That, that you know, um, because that's one of the dangers. There is that you you sort of reassuring in a situation where actually the families and the individual want to be reassured. They don't want to consider they might be having a severe mental illness. So so there is this danger that you 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 know you seal it off at that point. And, and I think the other thing that dry, that would drives my referral behavior is if I think that something's got a poor outlook. I'm far less inclined to, you know, if the opportunity to intervene effectively early improves the long-term outcome, then that's a key thing for me to understand in driving my referral behavior. Whereas if I think it's going to make no difference at all, and maybe it will just go away, I'm less inclined to sort of take that initiative uh, and proactively try to, you know, arrange referrals and proactive engagements. Um, so I think the, the attitude is really critical. The, and having an optimistic attitude, um, that this is something I can really make a big difference to. And I, I think that's an important part of what drives GP referral behaviour. I think, sorry, I was just going to say that that links really well with um, another article that's being published alongside both of your sort of clinical practical articles is that we've got a What Your Patient Is Thinking article, which is about a, a woman's experience of postpartum psychosis. And that was one of the things for her that she, she, there were opportunities within uh, primary care to sort of perhaps pick up on some of those symptoms, but she was very scared and nervous and and sort of terrified almost to reveal some of those very unusual things that she was experiencing in her case for fear of what might happen to her child but is that common that that people you know perhaps they're either due to lack of insight or because of fear of revealing some of these unusual thoughts they won't feel able to discuss yes I, I think one of the key things to realize is that uh, teenage can teenage years can be quite a difficult time at best and there are lots of changes going on. So when somebody presents with kind of, kind of unusual experiences, subtle unusual experiences, some changes in behavior, perhaps they're not doing as well at school or college or, or at work, there are some difficulties at work. It's not necessarily important to give a label at that stage. What is important is that kind of um, recognize that they are experiencing difficulties, maybe perhaps try to contextualize that to a certain extent in the context of what else is going on in their life at the moment. Are they having some difficulties at work? Um, is there a, a difficult supervisor? Is there some difficulty, some stress at uh, college? And kind of perhaps um, 
kind of feed, feedback to them that um, it's well known that when he's under when one is under stress that can have an impact on how how we are thinking and feeling so it's important that one receives support to deal with that stress and there are specialists available to provide that support not just to the young person but also the, to the family who are also having to grapple with worries about what what's happening to their son or daughter but also not knowing what's happening so um i think it's it's best to um uh, not just not foreclose the diagnosis but also not to kind of decide that yes this is definitely psychosis because quite often um psychotic symptoms can happen as part of a uh, normal experience so um a fleeting psychotic symptom doesn't necessarily mean that one ends up with a diagnosis of of psychotic disorder so it's important to uh to to recognize that and and be aware of that I think that's one of the useful things that you clarify as part of the article and actually I think we have there's an infographic a figure showing it but just thinking about how you might classify kind of different psychotic symptoms or experiences sort of into episodes um uh sorry it's episodes um so ep symptoms episodes and disorder absolutely yeah. um so yeah yeah so so for example for uh, somebody might have a fleeting uh psychotic experience and nothing sinister might come out of that on the other hand maybe kind of the symptoms are um the experiences are continuing for about a week maybe they are associated with some other um things like say the person is becoming a bit more withdrawn not doing very well at school or having difficulties at work then that should set the alarm bells ringing and and uh, that's when one would um want that young person to be referred to a specialist service and kind of quite often if the psychotic symptoms have lasted for about a week or so then kind of uh, and and if they are of a s- certain uh, degree of severity then we make a diagnosis of a s- first psychotic episode but again uh, it's important to remember that even if somebody experiences their first psychotic episode uh, about 1 in 5 of, th- of them will never go on to uh experience another psychotic episode in their life so um even when one is very clear that the young person is experiencing a psychotic episode that doesn't mean that's all doom and gloom uh and um quite often at that very early stage it's uh not even uh, possible to know what might happen whether there might be recurrence and in which case we might think of somebody having psychotic disorder when they have multiple episodes and again um when people have multiple episodes uh then they might have different types of psychotic disorder for example disorders that are uh, that also involve predominant mood problems so disorders like bipolar disorder or people who might have more um kind of uh less mood problems for example might uh, end uh, kind of lead to uh, s- something like schizophrenia but again um, it's very difficult at, at at that very early stage to know where things might end up and um the important thing is not to um not not to try to to be certain about outcomes and and but just have a more positive outlook because we know that um um even in those who develop a psychotic disorder um uh about 4 in 5 of them do respond to treatments and and do respond fairly well to treatments so so the outlook is 
generally positive. It's it's much better than how things were perhaps two, three decades ago. But one of the things you do yeah, highlight is that th there is uh, in and of itself a referral to an early intervention team or at least, um, you know, identifying someone early and and intervening early does have an impact on sort of their outcomes in certain senses. Um, so what, what outcomes can you impact on? How, how, does, how does that early recognition help? Yes, so, so, so that's a very important point that you have raised that um, I think studies have shown, and, and, and this is not just a single study, data from a number of studies have shown that if one is uh, able to reduce the duration of untreated psychosis, so basically re reduce the time, the delay in starting treatment in somebody who has developed their first psychotic episode, if one is able to reduce that, that has substantial impact in terms of better outcomes, in terms of psychotic symptoms, uh, more negative symptoms like being withdrawn and things like that, and also in terms of functioning. So, so there is a clear uh, need to really intervene early because that has real impact on, on, on better outcomes in the longer term. So, so just thinking a bit about the, the engagement issues for for people like my daughter. So, so one of the things that struck me was she was young. This is a, this was a 16, 17 year old, and and, and that's that's a typical age of onset uh, for this condition. Um, and then you say to yourself, well, I wonder what the sort of service would look like that a young person would wish to engage in, and, and it probably doesn't look like a conventional psychiatric outpatient clinic. So, being able to engage in a much less formal way. Um, and, and actually to be to, to be engaging over the issues that matter to you, you know, the, so, so so actually trying to convert this into diagnostic symptoms and and, um, and a sort of very clinical thing may not be the ideal way to engage. So so it's very important to try and engage a person on on what they're having difficulties with, but also engage them in a way that makes sense to them as young people. The, the other the other thing we were conscious of for Mary was that the, the actual service experience um, was was poor, was poor all the way through. Not that the, the clinicians were, were excellent, but the service settings were, were really poor. So the first experience was a, a child and adolescent clinic, which was a, a, a clinic designed for, for, you know, 10 and 11 year olds, I think. And Mary would go there every couple of weeks and sit in a, in, a, in the, this clinic room. Um, and we'd talk about the medicines. And, and there was really very little else going on. It was just a conversation about medicines. And, uh, and so, so it wasn't very relevant to Mary as a young person. She then went into an acute adult ward, which was chaotic and mainly had people who were 15 years or so older than her. So again, it was a very inappropriate setting for a young person. And eventually onto uh, this uh, this awful Victorian rehab setting um, where we noticed, you know, elderly men smoking in corridors and, uh, and the average age, I guess, would be 40s to 50s. And this was a rehab service for a 17, 18 year old. So, so this... That you know, that just sends it sends very difficult messages to to you as an individual and to your family. Um, so the eventual message we we took up and had to deal with was one of um, uh, written off. And there's no question that, that that was the message we took. This is a written off feeling, um, and we spent twenty years really resisting that and and turning it on its head. Yeah, I would like to really kind of because um, add to that because David has uh, touched upon a very important point and this is perhaps one area where early intervention has really brought about a lot of change and 
to understand why engagement um, is so important, one needs to realize that unlike somebody who has a physical health problem where they would themselves spontaneously seek help from their uh, general practitioner or from their specialist, a young person who is having the early uh, symptoms of psychosis quite often um, is not at a stage where they can recognize that there is something uh, going on that they might be experiencing uh, a, a mental disorder and which is why they often will not seek out uh, um, help and that's not just at the very early stages that's something quite characteristic of people who develop psychotic disorder so and and in one area where early intervention has played uh, kind of has has contributed enormously is that studies have shown that um, uh, early intervention consistently has been shown to improve engagement with services, improve patient satisfaction, which is critical in this particular group of people, uh, kind of uh, because of, of of how psychosis can affect their awareness of whether they are unwell or not. Mm. And and the other thing is, of course, um, 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 it has also uh, early intervention, detecting problems early and intervening early, has. Uh, some other real-world uh, implications, not just for the individual, of course, because it reduces the risk of uh, readmissions, hospital admissions, reduces the length of stay in hospital. And uh, perhaps what is more important for uh, uh, politicians and, and uh, kind of um, uh, that uh, and, and those who fund health services is that um, there is clear economic benefit so not just because of reduction in the number of uh, in in the duration of hospital stay of course there is that is important but also these young people if had they not been unwell they would have been expected to uh, kind of for example uh, finish studies get a job contribute to society so but by becoming un unwell so there is quite a lot of lost uh, kind of cost of lost employment and early intervention services have been shown to really cut down that kind of cost of lost employment, then there is the issue of uh, kind of something uh, we, we don't often talk about is that, and, and, and something that is very important is that we know young people developing psychosis are at a much greater risk of ending their lives. And again, that's one area where early intervention services have clearly shown great benefit. So, so, so that's why it's it's particularly important at this point of time to to focus on early intervention. And, and perhaps one other thing I, I would just like to uh, kind of uh, raise in this regard is that there has been um, uh, the Department of Health directive last year, uh, which started from April two thousand sixteen, which has. Uh, the, the Department of Health has set some um, assessment and waiting time directives with regard to early intervention. So there are certain requirements as to uh, assessing and offering treatment to people uh, if they are experiencing their first psychotic episode or if they are at, at, an, at an earlier stage when, when they are at high risk of developing a psychotic episode. And so there is, I think the time is now really ripe to take advantage of that and, and refocus attention on, on early intervention in, in young people with psychosis. Um, 
you know, as, as a GP, I'm, um, you know, mindful that conditions like cancer and heart disease, you know, if I, if I practice late intervention, I would be sued. Um, and actually, there's a very sensible reason for, you know, for having short uh, standards with, with, with short access times. Um, and the issue from a GP's point of view is that the sense of diagnostic certainty, um, that doesn't apply when you're, when you're suspecting that possibly someone has a cancer. Um, you know, I'd make a referral to someone who has had a hoarse voice uh, for an ENT assessment. Um, the sense that it's okay to make referrals when you're not absolutely certain of what's going on. That, that is, you know, very typically the world of general practice, the sense of diagnostic uncertainty, but actually a concern that something might be developing, something early and serious. And that if that turns out to be the case, then there's a huge advantage to, you know, to engaging with a specialist service that can, can make those assessments. But equally, if someone doesn't turn out to have a major mental illness or a cancer, um, they may still have some problems that, that need dealing with. But the sense is that you've, you've had that opportunity to, to access services with a potentially dangerous condition early at a time when you can make you know, the, uh, you know, significant difference to the outcomes. So, so I just wanted to pick up there, Sagnik, you mentioned about kind of that difficulty of presentation. Sometimes younger people might not present themselves, but their families might have noticed something. So they might be the first people to come to their GP and, and raise concerns. What can a, a, a GP or a non-specialist do in that situation? And are there issues around confidentiality? How can they you know, discuss that person's health in a way that kind of maintains their confidentiality but is useful to everyone involved? Yes. So, for example, if, as you said, that the young person has not attended but their family is worried and they, they want some advice from the GP, I think the key thing to remember there is that um, um, there is uh, no breach of confidentiality uh, if the GP were to receive information from the family about the young person. And again, um, uh, but however, if the young person is present, I think it's important to build a trusting relationship. And um, this is where GPs come in, uh, kind of play a very important role because they perhaps would have known that young person for quite some time. And to reassure the young person that um, kind of uh, if there, there are things that they wouldn't want to be shared with their family, the GP would that they would that those risk uh, requests would be respected so to to establish that very well but again um, quite often uh, people may not want to share certain bits of information that they have shared with their uh, doctor while they wouldn't mind for example other bits of information to be shared so so again one can uh, work around that but it's also important that uh, to recognize that um, family support is crucial to better long-term outcome and quite often it's the family that have brought the young person to, to the practice. So it's important that they are reassured that um, additional bits of information uh, are, is taken from them and, and kind of um, um, and, and, and they are kept informed. Also perhaps explain that uh, given the very nature of the, of the experiences that their son or daughter might be going through there are times when they might not want to share that information with others, but as they get better, they might be more receptive to sharing that information with, with their loved ones. And that's kind of, and, and that's okay. That's, that doesn't uh, mean that uh, they wouldn't be taken care of, that their problems will not be dealt with. 
So to reassure the family, keep them informed, not to push them away is, is the important thing at that stage. Uh, one, of, one of the things, I, one of the issues that often crops up, I think, particularly early on uh, with an, an illness like psychosis is confidentiality and how one as a professional interprets that. Um, so clearly, confidentiality is an important um, pillar of how we practice as clinicians. But also in, in terms of psychosis, it, it, um, you, you know, use sensitively, that's fine. Um, but if it's used as an excuse for not actually listening to, uh, say, family concerns, then it's it's foolish and actually harmful. Um, so for a family to... Um, for a family who's very distressed and 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 living with and perhaps watching a relative decline and um, and not really understanding what's going on, to then be excluded um, from the conversation because uh, he's an adult and you can wait outside. You know, this is this is this is this is an issue of confidentiality. Is not is not um, uh, is not helpful. Um, just picking up the, the issue of suicidality, um, people with their first experience of psychosis. Are, are quite a serious risk of suicide, um, particularly around the first episode and the first couple of years of, of having a psychosis. Um, what, we're, what, we, what we know is that with good family engagement um, at the time of first presentation, then an individual is something in the order of nine or ten times less likely to carry through uh, to an act of suicide. Uh, than in individuals who don't have that sort of family support and engagement, which which makes sense. But it's also an, an, it's another example really of how important it is to work with families and to understand the contribution that families can make. So so again, to come back to the issue of, of confidentiality, you know, sensitively handled, um, uh, but also understanding that families themselves have very important perspectives and, and contributions to make. And, and that it's 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 good practice to actually support families. So, for instance, if a you know if an individual um, does not want to have their uh, details of their own personal case talked with with a family, fine. But it, it's certainly legitimate for that family to be given help to understand what it means to have psychosis and some of the implications. And, and you've you've touched on there, obviously, the risk of um, self harm and suicide, and and I presume that contributes this, you know, quite shocking figure really that people with psychosis die on average ten to fifteen years before people in the general population, which you know it really is shocking. One one of the things that struck me with uh, Mary's illness, particularly initially, um, was that her physical health began to become threatened. Uh, you know, as a GP, I was well used to looking at people, uh, often in their 40s and 50s, with, you know, potential vascular risk, um, obesity, um, inactivity, um, etc. And yet I was seeing my daughter put into an environment where, you know, the old asylum, where not only did she do nothing, she was, I mean, completely inactive, just sitting on a couch all day. That was seen as perfectly normal behaviour. She would, if she did wander around it would be past the old men smoking in the corridors um the staff actually felt sorry for her because um, she had nothing to do so they would give her extra helpings of puddings because her appetite was she was craving food because of the effects of the antipsychotic medicines so in terms of risk to mary's longer-term physical health a lot of it was all there at the age of of 19 um and yet, as a GP, 
for the general population, we don't normally think about risks like that until people are in their 30s and 40s and 50s. And it, and it's, you know, this was the late 90s when when our experience was was to, was forming. 20 years on, we now know a lot more about the the risks of um, the risks of antipsychotic medicines in terms of stimulating weight gain. Um, so the average weight gain for someone who starts on an antipsychotic medicine with this sort of condition is is 12 kilograms. That's average weight gain in two years, 12 kilograms. And that was exactly the trajectory that my daughter had. So now 20 years on for Mary, she is, you know, she's, she is obese. Thankfully, she, met, she didn't take up the, the smoking habit and she is fairly active. But, you know, in, in, now at the age of 40, she has four or five times the risk of developing diabetes than her, than her two brothers. Um, that sort of very tangible risks are now emerging, and, and Mary is beginning to accumulate, you know, other physical conditions. So when we make our treatment decisions for a, a, an eighteen-year-old with their first episode of psychosis, we really do need to think very carefully about well, what's it going to be like in twenty years' time, when this person may have accumulated two or three extra conditions. Um, because to have one condition is difficult, but to have two or three conditions, particularly when they're as different as diabetes, say, and psychosis, makes it very difficult to negotiate healthcare. Um, so, so for for Mary now, she's lucky to have strong advocates. You know, in a, in a dad who's a GP and mum has been a nurse. Mary's fortunate in a sense to have that. But just think what it's like if you don't have that sort of level of advocacy. So, so the op- so. Just to summarise, for me, it struck me that the the opportunity to prevent a lot of the conditions that uh, people face twenty years downstream are right there in the in the in the first episode of psychosis. So to think, so we need to think much more body and mind right from the start of this condition um, if we are actually going to affect the downstream consequences. And you you mentioned in the article kind of exactly this, you know, th- this issue with kind of physical health and 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 give pointers really about how maybe non-specialists can can help or intervene or, or recognize this what, what what were some of those what are some of the things that people can do early on yes and again as as david has said that um our colleagues from the general practice um have a key role to play uh, in, in in this so normally the lifestyle disorders one would expect to kind of kick in from around 40s and 50s. And that's where in, in, in the general practice um, kind of uh, one starts kind of looking into that. But in young people who have psychosis, uh, this starts much earlier. So in their 20s and 30s. So kind of uh, one needs to start looking for any risk factors. And, and that's where GPs can play a critical role. And for example, are there any kind of metabolic abnormalities, um, kind of uh, effects of obesity, effects of smoking? So what, hap- what GPs normally would do for somebody in their 40s and 50s needs to start for somebody, a young people person with psychosis, that needs to start when that person is in, in their 20s and 30s. And, and presumably that is something that... Um, is sort of a partnership approach that that will be being looked at and monitored in secondary care as well. But yeah. the idea is that actually it's about the joint working and and that you know both primary and secondary care sort of need to work together. 
Absolutely, yes. So I think, you know, 20 years on from our experiences, things are vastly different. You know, another member of my family going into, you know, local service in North Staffordshire would get a very different experience to, to Mary. Um, and, um, you know, that's very positive. And, and what we're looking at is a far more holistic approach, um, a far more optimistic approach. For Mary personally, um, although she had this very difficult uh, start, we never really subscribe to the pessimism. Um, and so that although Mary has a, you know, a number of disabilities, actually she's, uh, she's never lost uh, the ability to shop well. She's, uh, she's very happy. She's in a very, very good care setting, residential setting quite near to our home. So, so Mary, you know, in a sense, also proves the importance of actually having an optimistic approach. And, and us as families, you know, the, the, the dangers of us assuming the pessimism of the service that Mary entered thankfully hasn't taken place and we've we've sort of we've held an optimism uh, which has been rewarded um, so i think this whole this whole notion of optimism um, and uh, therapeutic optimism um, is a really important principle of how early intervention services have moved forward just want to say thank you very much to Sagnik and David um, for joining us today and particularly to David for sharing yours and your family's and Mary's experiences as well and um, I think that really kind of has highlighted how important this is uh, as an issue um, and you, you thank you for listening you can read the articles online at bmj.com so thank you very much for joining us thank you Sagnik thank you and thank you very much David pleasure